Bell Church, if you are with me today, if you have your Bible, please grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, where we are going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen in English, Russian, or in Farsi. To start our time off, I'd like to begin by reading the passage together. This is the Word of God. Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, there really are two kinds of sin in this world. There's the deceptive kind, and then there's the non-deceptive kind. The non-deceptive sins are the kinds that we know about when we are engaged in doing them. So like murder or adultery, for instance. Right? Like imagine a person confronting another person saying to them, you know, Frank, um, I can't help but notice, you know, a lot of people have been dying around you lately. Have you, have you thought about that, that, um, uh, that, that you're a murderer? What, what you'll never hear is someone like Frank saying like, oh my goodness, like you're right. Like I, di- I didn't realize that, you know, I was killing people. You know, so uh, I-, I guess I'll have to change. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. See, there, there's sins like that, like a murder that don't function that way. If you're committing them, you know that you're committing them. Same thing with adultery. I mean, there's quite a few that are in that category, and they're not too hard to think about. Deceptive sins are different, though. On the other hand, they are under the surface, like the love of money or greed inside the soul. And they're difficult to deal with because they kind of slowly creep up on us. And oftentimes, deceptive sins can involve things which are actually normally very good, excellent things, but when they take over your life and they become ultimate things, that's when you actually have a problem and they become trouble. Now, I remember the story told to me of a, of a dad as well who loved working on cars. And he would spend all of his spare time just in the garage working on these cars as his kids were growing up until one day his teenage daughter actually had a heart attack and they discovered she needed a, a transplant. It was in that moment that he realized just how fragile life was and how precious time was with his children. So, He put away the cars, actually, and shelved his automobile hobby for the next 30 years as he spent his time with his kids instead. It's really interesting, right, when you think about it, because you have to ask the question, is working on cars a bad thing? And the answer to that is no, it's not, inherently. But when the cars end up driving you, That is, they drive your time, they drive your schedule, and they drive your finances rather than you driving them, then you have a problem. 
You have a problem when the car is the one that gets behind the wheel and says, I'm driving you. I control your life, not the other way around. And when that happens to anything in our lives, whether it's good things, whether it's cars, relationships, job, your career, or so on, what you realize that you have then is actually a type of deceptive sin, an idol that has appeared in your life and taken control. You're a slave, actually, to these things. Now, same thing goes for like money and greed. Is money inherently evil? No, it's not. You need it. In our world, you have to work with it in order to survive. But over time, if you're not careful, it is very easy actually to become accustomed to using it. And further, if you're not washing out, you can become accustomed to a higher and higher standard of living, a certain sense of entitlement. And before you know it, after a while, you realize that it has so much sway over your life that when it's removed from you and all of a sudden you go back to your poor and humble origins, you're anxious. You don't like it anymore. You get angry and you're upset. You know, for example, I've asked people, and maybe who haven't realized this in their life, and they talk about how much they hate their job or what they don't like about it. I said, why are you still working at it? Why do you do this if you dislike it so much and you detest it? And you know what the number one answer usually is? Four words. I need the money. I need the money. Same thing goes. And I ask people about why they struggle with sort of a guilt-ridden conscience working in, a, in industries, for example, like maybe gambling or the tobacco industry or worse yet, the pornography industry. Why do you do it? Same four words. I don't like it. I need the money. You know, it's interesting because you realize what sway money then has on your life when you have to say that because you're saying that when it's a choice between my well-being and the well-being of other people, I choose me. And I give up what I value, what I say that I believe, my own integrity for the sake of this money and taking care of myself. It really shows you actually what you believe and what's inside your heart, how you relate to something like money. See, when wealth actually begins to rule you, the transition is very difficult to spot. It only usually becomes apparent over time, and you look back and say, yep, this is what I once was, and this is what I am today. And unless you have someone who's actually willing to speak into your life and confront you about it, oftentimes you're unaware of it. Now, in our society, there are very few people who will actually be willing to go up to a person and talk to them about maybe a money type of idolatry or an unhealthy fixation of it. And the reason why is in North America, to say such things is considered a major taboo because you're intruding on someone's happiness. Highly impolite, get out of my life, you have no right to speak about that. But you know, as Christians, our lives are completely different. See, we're not afraid to offend people with regards to their happiness because as Christians, what we are commanded to strive for is our holiness. Our integrity is far more important than the size of our pocketbooks and our bank accounts. And therefore, since we are commanded to strive for holiness without which no one will see God, it is imperative for us as believers then to look at everything in our lives, including how we handle our money, and say, have you become a functional God in my life? Have I given in to the dangers of wealth? Am I now enslaved by something that was meant to be a tool for me or a gift from the Lord? See, Jesus warns his followers about the deceitfulness and the danger of wealth. And therefore, I think as believers, we do very well to meditate on this and to think through 
what his instructions and his commands are with relation to money. Let's go over this again. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. The text says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see what Jesus is doing here? In this little section, he gives here both a negative and a positive command, as well as a reason for each of those commands. Now, the negative commandment is quite simple. It's, it's this. Guys, if you're listening to me, he says, don't stock up money and wealth for yourself. Don't give yourself over to that. Why? Here's the reason, he says. It's a poor long-term investment. And he gives three actual reasons, three categories in which this functions. The first one, I will say, is, has to do with moth, as he says. Now, what does that mean? I think he's actually talking about a category that would be luxury goods. So, for example, in the ancient world, you didn't have access to TD Bank or CIBC or these sort of things. So, you had to store your wealth somewhere else instead, in physical items. Now, good clothing in the ancient world was really expensive and a store of value. For example, when you read the Bible and you think about how Israel was fighting at Jericho and they were forbidden from taking any of the silver, gold, and any of the items, you find that Achan actually sins by stealing not just silver and gold, but it says that he takes a cloak as well. Now, I think few of you, if you had a choice between stealing a gold bar and stealing a ski jacket, would pick a ski jacket. But So you have to understand that, that this is way more expensive you know, than just a t-shirt or a jacket. He looked at that and said, gold, silver, clothing, I'm taking all three. You get an idea then how valuable some of this clothing could have been in the ancient world. Now, this is not, like I said, a t-shirt. I want you to think more along the lines of like a $10,000 Gucci suit. But you know what the problem is with Gucci? And all of these luxury brands, it suffers from the same problem. And that is, if you leave it long enough, you expose it to the wrong things. A little bug will come along like a moth, and it will look at your $10,000 suit and say, that looks delicious. And then it will eat it. And it will ruin your suit for you. And if your suit costs $10,000, I guarantee you, you will be unhappy and you will not enjoy the fact that a bug has been chewing on something that's been valuable to you. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. This is the problem. He's saying, if you're storing your wealth and your money in these sort of things, guess what? It can be taken away from you just by the decay and the bugs that exist in this world. Luxury goods is not a store of value. There's no ultimate certainty in it. You know, the second thing he points out, I think, is essential goods when he talks about rust. Now, the Greek word that is used there for rust literally means uh, eating or consumption. Now, of course, I understand why a number of Bibles translate it this way, saying, okay, consumption. Well, rust actually metaphorically eats things. So it's a possible translation of this. But I actually think that it's probably something different. There's actually a different word in the Bible that means uh, rust or corrosion, but it's actually not used here. I think actually this more literally does refer to literal consumption. And by that, I mean that you have to understand another place in which people in the ancient world stored valuable things. So in addition to luxury goods, they would store their value in things like grain or corn, essential goods that you could actually eat and that would be sellable on the marketplace for money. So in the ancient world, essential goods like grain actually could be worth a lot. 
And you see this, for example, in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus tells the parable of a rich man who has an abundant harvest, and what does he do? He actually says, I'm going to build bigger barns for himself, and because I don't have access to TD Bank, I'm going to store all of my money and my wealth in these giant silos instead. But of course, what Jesus is pointing out is that even though this was a common practice in the ancient world, guess what? This isn't secure, because even such goods can be consumed. Certainly moths won't eat your grain, but vermin, rats, and other little animals could get in there and ultimately destroy your harvest. Essential goods, not a store of value either. The third thing that he mentions here about thieves relates to, I would say, monetary goods. So in the ancient world, people often buried their treasures, their valuables, either in their house or in their fields or somewhere basically around them. This is why Jesus can actually tell parables, for example, about heaven and say it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Like, I don't know when the last time was that you had a treasure test and you went and buried it in your backyard. I mean, today, we go to a bank and we have a safety deposit box, we have a little key and we click it away. We have all these sorts of things. But in their world, they didn't. So where would you hide the stuff that you really don't want anybody else to take? Answer, on your own property, in your house. Bury it deep. Hope that nobody finds it. Now, we read about this, for example, if the servant as well, who took his talent of, or his money, and he buried it in the ground to hide it. This is what people did. Now, given that homes in the ancient world were not made like our, world, our homes today, and that many of them were just made out of mud and bricks and so on, you could, as a thief, literally dig through the walls of a house and break into that house and steal what was of value if the owner was owned. So the word that's used here actually is literally like tunneling, you know, digging. Out. And this is what the four friends actually do in Mark chapter 2, who want to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They can't get near to him, so what does it say that they do? Well, they start working on the roof. They take apart the roof, and they literally tunnel into the house. So it was be, this would be much more difficult to do today, but in their world, not difficult at all. Okay, Dig through the walls. Something you could do, steal the stuff that's inside. You know, when Jesus points this out, he's saying, look, we're talking about luxury goods. I'm talking about essential goods. I'm talking about your monetary goods, your gold and silver. Guess what? If you're planning to put your hope in some form of wealth in this world, everything can be taken for you. Moths can eat it. Essential goods can be eaten by rats. Your monetary goods can be stolen by thieves. Nothing is ultimately secure in this world. And guess what? Worse yet, you can't even take it with you when you die. See, nobody who's buried, even in a nice $10,000 suit with pockets, can use those pockets when they're dead. They're worthless. See, do you realize how unpredictable life is? Even today. You know, you, two years ago, you might have used money, for example, to invest in and start a new restaurant. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19 actually bankrupted you. You invested maybe with a financial institution that promised great returns, but it turned out to be a scam and the people ran away with your money. You lost all of your savings. Or perhaps you invested in your physical health, you know, to be an Instagram influencer, you know, instead. Your face is your brand. And you suffer an accident. You suffer a stroke, maybe a heart attack. You become crippled. You have nerve damage. And all of a sudden, instead of being an influencer and making money, you are left destitute. Life didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, and maybe even your retirement plans are now out of the window. See, all I'm saying is that how many of us have experienced 
incredible setbacks in life that we could never have foreseen or planned for. Life is not certain. As much as we try to control it, it's not ultimately in our control. See, nothing on earth is secure. And that's the reason why Jesus says here, don't store your treasure on this earth, but I want you to stock it up in heaven where it's ultimately secure. See, Jesus isn't against investments. He's just against bad investments. And he wants you to invest not just on a 30-year time frame, but on an eternal time frame. Look to heaven, ultimately. Now, the question for us, of course, is how, if that's what we're to invest in, how are we supposed to invest in eternity? What does that actually look like, practically speaking? Now, I think the answer to this is actually found in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, in which we are going through. So Jesus has painted an incredible picture of how differently his disciples are to live in this world. He says things, for example, my disciples, you pray in secret, you fast in secret, you give to the needy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do not lie actually to each other, but tell the truth. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Also, do not repay evil for evil. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for them. The Sermon on the Mount is full of instructions like this. See, there's no earthly reward for allowing somebody to insult you. You know, as a pastor, I'm often criticized or insulted you know, for things that I've done. And honestly speaking, I don't find that particularly enjoyable. But where I find joy is in knowing that Jesus said that it would happen. And then he promised me that if I do not repay evil for evil, but repay good for evil, my Father in heaven will be pleased and he will bless me. And if I do so, I reflect the God who is in heaven, whom the Bible says sends his rain and his sunshine on the good and the wicked alike. My God is a God who is kind even to the wicked. And so, out of reverence for my God who is like this, generous even towards his enemies, I too want to be like my God and bless those even who curse me. No, I don't enjoy being insulted, but it is an honor for me to be like my Savior, and to emulate the kindness and generosity of God. See, living as a faithful disciple of Jesus is what it means, actually, to be storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. So when you love your neighbor, you spend time in prayer, you share the gospel with people, you don't repay evil for evil, you feed the hungry, you console the broken, you fight for those who can't repay you, you labor on behalf of the brokenhearted. All of these things that you are doing is making the greatest possible investment you can ever make. And that is investing in a secure future eternity. This is remarkable. I think it's so beautiful how Jesus' inverted kingdom actually is. Jesus is the one who said, whoever desires to be great amongst you must actually be least of all. Whoever desires to save his life actually must lose it for my sake. See, nobody is ever too lowly or too short to enter in the kingdom of God, but you can actually be too tall as you stand upwards in pride. You may be too poor in this world for materialistic individuals to even notice you in this world, but you are never too poor to give to God as you pour out your own humble offerings to him. See, what the Bible shows us is that God designed human beings actually to be givers. 
who are reflections of Him, a generous, giving God who gives us life and goodness every single day. But sadly, because of human sin, we tend to be getters instead, looking at people and saying, what can I get from you? How can I make my life better for myself? And we live for ourselves to varying degrees. Now, remember in the beginning I said that sin is deceptive and also that it can slay and enslave you without you realizing it? The question is, how do we avoid this? And there's a way that you can actually do that, a test that Jesus gives us. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, and he's noting, is that all of us understand it's actually very difficult to see the heart. Not the organ that's in your chest that a surgeon can see during surgery or with a camera, but the seat of who you are, the essence of your very being. Now, if God and love for God is at the very center of your heart, who you are, what you treasure absolutely the most, I guarantee you it will show up in your life. All of your life will be centered around the things of God. You know, lately, uh, this whole chess craze because of the pandemic and TV and other stuff has really, you know, been um, circling around me. I've had multiple people asking me about my old chess days. What do I think about chess now? Sam, do you want to play me on chess.com? You know, sort of thing. You know, it just, you know, it brings me back to my days as a kid. You know, I, I loved the game of chess. I got up in the morning at 6 a.m. to play it. I read books. I had a coach. I memorized openings. I ran the chess club. I organized a chess tournament as well for uh, my gifted education program at UBC. It was something I just really, really liked. Greatest sport in the world, I thought. But do you know what all sports, including chess, have in common? Do you know what problem they have? It's the problem of posers. And by that, I mean people who claim that they love the game but in actuality, they don't really. Those people, you know, that I would talk to and they say, yeah, I play regularly. And I say, oh, that's great. Like, do you have a rating? Do you play in tournaments? And they'll say, no, no, I just play on like yahoo.com and stuff. But I'm actually really good at chess. And I say, okay, like, well, like, what, what's your favorite opening? What do you play? And they're like, oh, you know the one like where you, you move your pawns into the center and then the knight comes out and there's like a little bishop in there. And I go, okay, you mean like, e4, e5, knight f3, knight c6, bishop e5. That's called the Spanish game or like the Ray Lopez. They're like, yeah, yeah, like something like that. And I, and I think to myself and I, and, and I go, oh, so do you study? It's like, no, I don't believe in studying. I just like, I like, I like thinking for myself. And I go, you don't read. You don't even know what stuff is called. You say you're really good and you just play on yahoo.com. And I go, you don't really love the game. You're a fake. You're a poser. You know, people really love the game, know these things about it. You say that you love it, but all you do is you just dabble in the game. See, when you really love the game, weekends are not for friends. Weekends are for playing at tournaments, right? When you really love the game, birthday money as a kid is not for you to go spend on Pokemon cards. It's so you can subscribe to new chess magazines. That's what money is for. Or buying a new nice chess set. See, 
when you really love something, you love the game of chess, you'll feel like a day without a game of chess is worse than a day without sunshine. I can live without the sun, but I can't live without the board. So here's my point. Here's my point. If you love something deeply inside your heart, it will show up in your life, in the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, and the way you spend your energy. You'll give it all to that which you love the most. Whether that's chess, or whether that's hockey, whether that's a person, or your job, it will show up in the way that you live. Now, it's true for chess, and it's also true for disciples of Jesus. You know, the question for us is, if someone were to audit your time and energy, what would they see? Would they see an inordinate fascination with Netflix, ordering stuff on Amazon Prime, just retail therapy, buying things for yourself, energy spent on games, your job? Like, what, what is it that makes you tick? Or if they were to look at your life, would they see clearly that you're not just a God poser, that God's word is valuable to you? The ministry towards God's people is what you spend your time in. Feeding the hungry is a burden on your heart. You love worshiping with God's people, and it pains you to be away from them. You know, I'm not saying that this is all the time, or that you don't have seasons in which you fall back into difficulty, or other things tug at you, but this is the general trajectory of those who love God. We are to be posers, right? We are to be genuine followers and disciples of Jesus. So you want to know where your heart is? Jesus says this. Follow your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, and the truth of the matter is, as you invest more and more in God's work, actually what you'll discover is that it also drags your heart along. You say, God, I want more of you. God gives more of himself to you. And you will find that your heart shifts more and more to the heavens and your life and everything that you see will be guided sort of through this heavenly purpose. See, what you see as your treasure absolutely matters. And the reason it matters is because it actually completely affects the way that you live. Look at verses 22 to 23 here. The text says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. Now, th these are fascinating verses in this text because what it, connect, what it does is that these verses connect your outlook on life with the quality of life that you have. Now, to be clear here, a healthy eye does not mean having 20-20 vision. Jesus is not trying to play eye doctor here and say, well, guess what? Like, if you actually are blind and you can't see, you're living in darkness. I mean, anybody can see that, okay? That's not what he's getting at, right? He's using this as a spiritual metaphor to say something about life. He's saying here, basically, that a life that is connected to eyes that are healthy, spiritually healthy, is a life that we flooded with light, presumably the light of God. And an eye that is dark or bad will be connected to a life that is dark. Now, the question for us is, what exactly then does Jesus mean by a healthy eye and a bad eye? Now, this exact phrase, bad eye, is also found somewhere else in the New Testament. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, we read about the bad eye. It's hard to see, actually, in our translations, but it's there. 
in the story, this is Jesus speaking. He tells a story of a master who hires people to actually do work for him. Some he hires at the beginning of the day and he promises to pay them. Others he hires later in the morning and others at the afternoon. And then in the evening comes to pay them, he pays them all the same. But in the end of the day, right, these workers, seeing that everybody gets paid the same, despite the fact they all work different amounts of time, they start to grumble with each other. But the master in that story says this, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious, same phrase, or is your eye bad because I am generous? See, the bad eye, which appears literally here as well, in this context means that you see only how you're either being benefited or shortchanged in a particular context. And you don't celebrate the incredible generosity of God. There's a stinginess about you when you have this bad eye. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 9, in the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament, has a very, very similar phrase as well. Let me read it for you. The text says this in the law. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye looks grudgingly on your brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. See, the idea here in this text is that Israelites were not in their community look at the poor and say, mm, he's really in need and he's impoverished right now, but year seven is coming soon. So I know if I lend him money right now, he's not going to have to repay it, and I'm never going to get my money back. So best not to help him at all because I really want to keep my money. See what the bad eye here is? It's the same phrase. The bad eye here is very similar. It's again looking at a situation in life and saying, what's in it for me? How does this benefit or shortchange me? Rather than to say, how might I be of a benefit to others? How might I live in such a way that others might benefit from my generosity and I can give to them? So if I were to summarize and say, what is a healthy eye and what is a bad eye? A healthy eye in the Bible is this. It is an eye of generosity. It's an outlook on life that looks around the world and says, how can I benefit you and serve you? Whereas the bad eye is a stingy eye that looks at people in this world and says, how can you benefit me and how can you serve me? Huge difference. The first one is about a heart that is generous towards God and says, how can I be generous to other people? The second one says, how can I make other people to be generous towards me? And the second one reflects our default selfishness and our sinfulness towards others' world. We're all born like this. We naturally think about ourselves. And only through Jesus can we be redeemed. You know, we all naturally love to guard our earthly wealth and health. Do you know what the scariest part is about having a bad eye that Jesus is talking about here? That is really to be totally self-absorbed. The real danger is not even just that, but it's actually the danger of thinking that you see when you actually don't. See, in North America, we celebrate individualism and we put such a high 
priority on doing what you want, making yourself happy, and so on, and thinking that's the way to live. The truth of the matter is, that's a very materialistic and North American way of thinking, and many cultures in the world find that actually to be reprehensible. Such individualism above the common good. You know, the truth of the matter is that we have come to believe that this is the best way to live, and the truth is that the Bible looks at it and says, that's not the way to live, that's the complete opposite of the way to live. And yet we North Americans think we have the light. And we see actually rightly, and the Bible says, no, you don't. You're selfish. You're sinful. That's not actually the way to live. And when you actually at this place where you think that kind of selfishness, that kind of darkness is actually light, Jesus says, how great then is the darkness? See, do you know how deceptive and dangerous darkness needs to be to actually fool you into believing that it's light? That is some kind of darkness. That's the kind of darkness Satan specializes in. Satan is so dark that he masquerades as an angel of light. See, the only more dangerous thing that's worse, is the only thing more dangerous than a blind man trying to drive a car is a blind man who thinks that he can see and drive a car. I guarantee you the second one will probably get into an accident way faster than the first. Let me tell you, this kind of self-deception actually occurs all the time. You become so convinced in your life that you're doing things for the right reason when actually, deep inside your heart, you're doing them for all the wrong reasons. And you don't believe this. This actually occurs in families all the time, especially in relation to work. You have wives who start with their husband, and you know they start building a company when it's small, and they're working together. As the company grows, the father spends more and more time at work and is more and more distant from his family. And his wife comes to him and says, Honey, you know, I... I just can't help but feel, but, you know, you're so distant from the family and the company. Please, you know, can something change? You know, I don't do this anymore. It's destroying us. And the husband might say, feeling offended, hey, hey, I'm doing this for you and the kids, right? It's always about, oh, I'm doing this for you and the kids. It's not about me. It's about you and the kids. We have bills to pay. You know, we want a future and this and that. It's not about me. And the truth of the matter is, deep down inside, maybe there's this desire for prestige power, control. It's so taken over your life that you don't even realize it anymore. You can't even bear to hear somebody contradict you. Like the alcoholic who says, holding a bottle in his hand, uh, well, I'm not a drunk, I could stop anytime. Yes, that's exactly the way that it works. You know, I get it why we like wealth, right? We like money because it can command respect, you feel good, you can buy stuff, you can buy things from people, and in some cases you can even buy people if they have a price. Now, in North America, it's too polite, impolite to admit things like, yeah, I think money is the most important thing in your life. That's just socially stupid, and you understand that. So we understand that if you like money and your own well-being, you shouldn't say that first, but you should say something more humanitarian, like, I believe in community good, and so on. I love making money because I like being able to share it with others. Well, you actually really like making money because you like spending it yourselves. Sharing it is just a byproduct of... Uh, you know, making money so that you can at least look like a decent human being. But you really just like the extra money. You know, I remember being, uh, as a child, once I was really young, being taken to see a doctor in the morning for an illness or so on. But later, uh, because of further concerns, my parents actually took me to see another doctor. The doctor, you know, listened to, you know, listened to us, you know, and she treated us well until she heard that we had seen another doctor that morning. She looked at us and she said, what? And then she got irritated. And she said, you know, I'm not going to get paid for this. And our visit actually ended very quickly after that. 
See, she was no longer helpful when she thought that she probably wasn't going to get paid for this particular visit. Not really interested in a little child as well who was ill. See, why do you do the things that you do? Do you see people with the eyes of generosity hoping to actually pour yourself out into them? Or do you see people with the bad eyes or the stingy eyes that actually look at people and you judge them and you assess them, saying, hmm, are you going to be a drain or are you going to be a gain towards me? You know how many Asian parents want their kids to grow up and be doctors? You ever stop to answer, ask the question to why they tell their kids you want to be doctors? See, I, I heard this all the time from my friends and other people who grew up with this pressure, from the stereotypical, let's say, Asian mom. Conversation goes like this. Mom, maybe, uh, imagine this. I've decided I want to be a doctor. Oh, really? Oh, that's so good. Like, study hard. Don't get a boyfriend. Boyfriend's too distracting. That's a good choice. You live at home. We feed you. You know, you'll go be a doctor. Yeah, so on. And then the girl says, but mom, actually, I want to be a doctor that serves with Doctors Without Borders. And I want to volunteer around the world, my time and my energy, and do things that are good. And then the the mom's face completely changes. You, You what? You, you making joke, right? Why you want to do that? Why you put your life at risk? Why, why so dangerous? You know, one girl I read about, I kid you not, was chided by her mother. Her mother tried all sorts of excuses on her why it's a bad idea, and she finally ended and said, you won't be able to wear your pretty dresses to work if you do this. See, it's so, 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 all right. For many Asians who think that money, security, and wealth are the ultimate thing in life, and that's what you need to chase above everything else. You know what medicine is? Medicine is nothing more than a tool to get that. You know, as one person joked, he said, for Asian parents who want their kids to be doctors, helping people is just an unfortunate byproduct of medicine. It's really about money, right? Helping people is the byproduct. That's functionally how some people are. It's tragic if it is so. You know, I remember reading the story of Dr. David Palmer, who was an anthropologist at Hong Kong University, and he talked about his bus rides in China in 1993. And he said, when he sat on the bus, he said, I sat on the bus, people started to chat with me. The first question was, where are you from? And then he would say, the second question was, what do you do? And the third question was, how much do you make a month? Everybody says, ask me the same three questions in that order, whether I was on the bus or the train or in a restaurant. Now, okay. To be fair, to be fair, other cultures like money too, okay? Hindus worship Lakshmi as well, goddess really associated with wealth. You go look back at the ancient Romans, they had Mercury, who was the uh, patron god for all the businessmen and so on. Yeah, people over, for centuries have always looked for a god of money to worship because they want to be rich. But Chinese people also have a god of money. His name is uh, Tai Sanye. Right? Tai Sanye, maybe some of you heard about it. The interesting part was, like, un- unlike other gods in other cultures that I've observed who have neat names like Zeus and Hermes and other things like that, the, the, the Chinese god Tai Sanye, his name literally translated means god of money. There's, there's no question as to what this god actually does. He has one purpose, and that is he is about money, because his name is god of money. Like, I, I've thought about it, and I said, like, how much more focused can you be, you know, when it comes to your singular purpose as a God that's worshipped? I mean, he doesn't carry a trident. 
or a lightning bolt like other gods. He doesn't have these cursed things. He carries a stick, and this stick has a magic power. Can you guess what this magic power is? The stick's magic power is that it can turn stone and iron into gold. Right? I mean, this is the nature of this god that is worshipped by Chinese people. And you go to Chinese restaurants and places, you might even see an idol there uh, uh, of Tyson Ye, right? Asian kids are trained from young to value money. At Chinese New Year, what do you get? You get these red packets of money. And then your parents teach you about the value of money by saying, you can't spend it. They take it from you and they force you to put it in a bank account. You know, many Asians that you will discover never use their dishwasher. And their dishwasher in their home is only for storing dishes. The idea of turning it on and using it is unthinkable. And for some, why? Costs money. Too much electricity. Can't use the dishwasher. Others will say, nope, hang all of your laundry. Can't use the dryer. Too expensive. Or in wintertime, right? Another one that I've heard. Mom, it's like freezing in the house here. Can we turn up the heat? No, don't turn up the heat. Don't waste money. Wear more clothes, right? Or the other one, which is common that you will see. Oh, you're unboxing your new TV and you're starting to remove the plastic and say, no, don't take off the plastic. Why? We need to keep it looking perfectly new. That's why sometimes you go to these homes and you see the remote control is completely still in its shrink wrap and you're still using it. Why, right? Because Asians say, I want it new. I want to make sure I keep it. You know, I want to be able to make sure it's in perfect, pristine condition. I can't bear it that this thing I paid money for will become destroyed one day. You go to an Asian person's fridge, sometimes you look in the thing, you're like, wow, like, why do you have 15 yogurt containers? And you're like, those aren't, that's not yogurt. Asians never throw out containers. They never throw out plastic bags. Just, you go looking in their fridge for yogurt, that might not be actually yogurt. That could be anything from fried rice to chicken feet right? Because they're like, why would I buy a container when I have free ones that I can reuse? See, you know what all this says, these stereotypes? They show us something, actually, about the mentality and the thinking of many Asian people who are absolutely bent on saying, my life is here. The only thing that can help me, secure me, and make me feel comfortable in life is if I have enough money. So I hoard, I try to make sure I take the shampoo bottles from every hotel that I go to and stuff because I need to hang on to my money. My money is what is going to make my life good. And functionally what happens is many Asian people worship wealth. They believe it's the best security that you can have in this world. Now, to be fair, these Asian stereotypes don't represent all Asians, although there's truth to them as well. But I have to say the same thing is true about North Americans, even though we don't speak it. We just spend it on different things. I think there are many North Americans who worship Tyson Ye as well, just like Asians do. It just plays itself out in a different way. And if you touch an Asian's remote control that's plastic wrapped, and you threaten that idol of theirs, they will grab it back and make sure that the plastic stays on it. Same thing happens in North America, right? You threaten them in a different way by saying, what if you lose your house? You can't have the big house with the white picket fence and the yard that you like and you're forced to live in a condo. Will you be unhappy? What if you can't have the vacations that you enjoy because traveling is such a part of our lives? We like backpacking and going places. Will you be unhappy? What if you don't make as much money as the people around you? What if you uh, lost your ability to go out to restaurants and hang out with your friends all the time? Will you be unhappy? Will you get angry? Will you say that, you know, the world is unfair around you. Will you take it out and lash on other people? When that happens to you, you realize when something is taken from you and you become totally upset, so angry, and you can barely function as a result of it, or it completely crushes you, you have an idol. 
You may not have a physical idol that you worship on your mantle, but there's an idol there in your heart. And that's the nature of idols. They're inside of you. And, and anytime they're threatened, you will react harshly to that. That's how you know. You know, I know that we Canadians like to think that we're generous people and that we care about the world, but you know the truth is, looking at 2019 data, I found that only one out of five Canadians gave anything in, that could be claimed on a tax receipt. So that means that in their 2019 taxes, four out of five Canadians gave zero to charity that could be claimed. Crazy, right? Think about it. For a, a nation that's as rich as ours, where do we put our money? You know, I think, I think for us, you know, we are richer than we think that we are, and we are less generous also than we think that we are. You know, Jesus' point is this. Do you want a life that is flooded with light? God's light, that is. Then, he says, the only way to have that is if you have a healthy eye or a generous eye. And that is an eye that sees, how can I give to those that are around me? You know, I love what one writer said, what Jesus is saying here. He says, there's nothing like generosity. Jesus is saying, there's nothing like generosity for giving you a clear and undistorted view of life and of people. And there is nothing like the grudging and ungenerous spirit for distorting your view of life and of people. See, you know what he's saying here is Jesus saying, it's one or the other. You want to see life rightly? You want to be able to see people rightly? You need to have a healthy eye. And if you have a stingy eye, you will forever see the world as a distorted place. And this is why Jesus closes with this summary in verse 24 when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what it boils down to as a, as a servant, you can't have two masters. And the question is, who is your master? Who are you serving? Is it God or are you serving yourself through money? Are you worshiping what money can bring you? Now, as we wrap this up, brothers and sisters and friends are listening. Some of you might be listening to this and saying like, yeah, maybe I've never noticed this in my life. Maybe I've been so fixated on self. I've never thought about being generous as God has been generous to me. I want to be more generous. I want to see the world through God's eyes. I want to have God's light and life flood into my soul. I want to have peace that surpasses all understanding. I want to have heavenly treasure and not just the treasures of this world that always seem to be taken away. But I'm afraid because what if I give of everything that I have and, and I die or, or life goes really badly for me? You see why this passage is so important, Jesus says. You don't have to worry about that if your treasure is not here. But it's ultimately in heaven where God is. If your treasure is secure and it's in heaven, you don't have to worry about what you're going to lose here on this earth because what you have on this earth is not treasure compared to what has been given to you by God. Do so you know what the Bible teaches us? is that all of us are sinners, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ died for us. It's because of Jesus' radical generosity, coming for his enemies, dying on the cross to pay for the sins of people like you and me who have lived for ourselves, who wanted nothing to do with him, even though God has made us, we live our own lives. He says, I want to be generous to such people. In this is love, the Bible says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we're going to talk about generosity, we need to first talk about the generosity of God. And if you grasp that and you understand and say, yes, Jesus died for me, God was immensely generous to me, 
I have been a recipient of an untold, unparalleled, infinitely valuable gift. Now do you see how, if that is inside your heart, you can look at the rest of the world around you and say, I can be generous. I can be generous as God has been generous to me. There is nothing that I can't give that will even come close to what God has given me. What a privilege it is for me to be able to look at the world with a generous eye. See, the only way that you can have people say, I'm going to give my entire life for all of you, even my enemies, is if in their heart they have an image of one who has done that for them. You know, fear is not a great motivator. You can put a gun to a person's head and tell them to be generous. Sure, they might give out their money. They might even hand you their wallet if you're mugging them. But that is not called generosity. A mugger who compels somebody to give them their wallet by force is not inducing generosity in a person. What induces generosity is a changed heart. Not a gun pointed to your head, but watching a person who took a bullet instead for you. And out of reverence and love for what they have done, you say, I want to do that as well. You see why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important to the heart motivation behind why we give as Christians. Jesus is saying, you want to be generous. The Bible teaches you want to be generous. You want to have an eye that fills your body with light. You need to understand the gospel. You need to understand how you've been a recipient of God's generosity and then go out and do absolutely the same thing. And when you know and experience this forgiveness of God, only then can you go out and you can be generous. You know, friends, those of you who are listening to this today, let me ask you, have you thought about the generosity God has shown to you by giving you life, saving you, forgiving you of your sins, loving you even when you haven't loved him, reaching out to you in your darkest and your deepest times? How many of us, brothers and sisters, can remember the kindness of God even when we have sinned against him and done terrible things, how his steadfast love has never ceased and never failed? Oh, we celebrate the generous justice and the generous goodness of God. And so as people, we don't go out being generous saying, well, I hope this gets me into heaven. We say no, because Jesus gave me heaven and was generously lavished on me this gift. It is my joy to go out and to be generous to others as well. Father, help me to have a generous eye as I look at what you have done for me. Yes, you may be tired, you may lose your sleep, you may be exhausted, you might work with people who absolutely hate you or can never repay you for what you have done. But take heart, believers. Your reward is secure in heaven. Your home is there. And there is nothing that you can't lose in this world which will not compare one thousandfold to the greatness and the glory that awaits you in heaven. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can imagine the things that God has promised to those who love. Father in heaven, such an important text today. And to ask ourselves the question is, what are we living for? Father, help us to ask that question of ourselves. Do we see this world as something primarily to benefit from, or do we see this world as a place that is broken and desperately in need for us to offer our very own lives to serve? Father, I pray that you will build in us generous hearts, Eyes, O oh God, that are free from deceit. Show us, O oh God, if idols have entrenched themselves in our souls and taken away our affections for you and that we have lost our first love. God, help us to love you and out of our love for you, love other people, God, and give of ourselves, even if people cannot repay us at all. Father, to serve you and to love you, O oh God, 
above everything else in this world, O God, is the absolute joy of our souls. So we praise you, God, for Christ, who came and died for us and was generous with us. Father, help us to believe that you will take care, for, take care of us as we treasure you and we trust you. And help us to see our treasure is not in this world. And therefore, we can always give without worrying about what we will lose. Help us to give as Jesus gave. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.